Thank you, musicians, for reminding us that beyond the trifling superficialities of this age is a true bread of life experience waiting for us. I encourage you, make the most of getting to know this glorious God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can worship you. And I pray at the end of this service, may we desire to worship you even more. I'm asking, Lord, that you'll help us to see so that we could worship and that you'd bless us, Lord, with a sense of the awesome glory that you've brought in bringing your son and also, Lord, in establishing this country to further announce the beauty of who you are. Guide us now, I pray. Bless us. May we hear. May we move. May we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a unique Sabbath in that it is the 4th of July. And I'm going to do something which could be a little bit misunderstood by some. I hope not when it's all said and done. When I was a boy... I went to public school for seven years. It was a good public school. It predated many of the effects of the social revolution in which we had to throw off everything that had shaped who we had been for two centuries. I sang many patriotic songs. Uh, I sang songs I didn't understand, you know. She's a grand old flag. She's a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may she wave. She's the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue. And then we came to that line I couldn't get, where there's never a boast or brag. And I thought, isn't that what most of this song is? (laughs) But I've come to a place where I understand uh, an adage that I don't really believe in for people, and maybe I shouldn't believe in it for nations, It was one my kids threw down at me when I was parenting them through adolescence, and I would tell them, I would quote that famous line out of the Proverbs that says, let another man praise thee and not your own lips, and they'd come back with, it ain't bragging if it's true. So I'd like to avoid nationalism today, but I would like to highlight the principles of this nation. And what that means is, I don't want to look out simply for America or Americanism, but I don't want anybody to walk out of this sanctuary today or turn off their YouTube feed or their Facebook live feed not understanding that God did something very special 244 years ago when this country declared it was breaking with the way the world was governed and going a different route. So I'm going to start this morning with a speech given by our second president of the United States on July 4 in 1837, John Quincy Adams. We hold, says the Declaration, these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. 
Now, there's an awful lot in these sentences. They are pregnant with meaning. The institution of this government came from a reflection upon the laws of God. This government is to be directed for the sake of those governed, not for the sake of those governing. And that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, I'm going to go to the second paragraph, and I want to set it up for you because I want you to understand the difference between religious liberty and religious toleration. The closest thing to religious liberty that existed in America was what Britain was allowing in some of the things that were going on under the realm of its empire. Of course, Britain was not always tolerant. We know this. We have the story of Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan, Bunyan thrown in the Bedford jail. But Britain came to a place where it actually had religious toleration, but that's completely different than religious liberty. Now I'm going to explain to you why this nation had to come into existence, and at its core is the belief structure in man. Most people believed with the support of the church up until the revolution in this country that there were two groups of people, those capable of governing with illimitable sovereignty and wisdom and those that needed to be governed for the sake of civility. The Bible does not teach this. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, after the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius' house, Peter declares, now I know of a certainty that God is a respecter of no person. But the theology of the divine right of kings allowed for an abuse of power and a persecution of religious dissidents that set up the necessity for the progress of the Protestant Revolution that a, a environment, a circumstance, a community, a government, government should be maintained which would allow the continuing projectile of truth to go untrammeled on its course. So now I'm only taking parts of his speech, but I want to come to another paragraph. The most celebrated British moralist of the age Dr. Samuel Johnson, in a controversial tract on the dispute between Britain and her colonies, this is all from Adam's speech on July 4, had expressly laid down as the basis of his argument, all government is essentially absolute. We as Americans do not believe this. We do not believe that government is essentially absolute. We believe it's set up for the pursuit and the welfare of those governed, and its limits are set by those who are governed. We do not believe that all government is essentially absolute, that in sovereignty there are no gradations, in other words, no layers like steps, that there may be limited royalty, there may be limited consulship, but there can be no limited government. They did not believe in limited government. What they said was law, their power is to be unquestioned, and you were to fall in line. There must be in every society some power or other form from which there is no appeal. 
which admits no restrictions, which pervades the whole mass of the community, regulates and adjusts all subordination, enacts laws or repeals them, erects or annuls judicatures, extends or contracts privileges, exempts itself, here we go, listen to this carefully, exempts itself from question or control and bounded only by physical necessity. The people forming this government believe that all powers were subject to accountability. And this three-tier system of government between the executive, legislative, and judicial branch was set up to check the dark side of the human heart for which we understand that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this American government is a unique thing on the face of the earth. In six millennia of human existence, according to the Bible record, no such trial, experiment, or government ever existed. And while there was a period in time in which the governance of Israel was a theocracy, beyond that, it was subject to the whims of good rulers and bad rulers. And Lord pity you if you were stuck under a Manasseh. The sovereign authority conferred upon the people of the colonies by the Declaration of Independence could not dispense them nor any individual citizen of them from the fulfillment of all their moral obligations. What is he saying? But because we take our dignity of person and our right of existence and governance like this way from God, we cannot shed our moral obligations to God. This is largely lost in the 21st century. This is largely lost in the modern governance. You need to remember that if we are endowed with these privileges by the laws of God as seen in nature and, and those laws that so constitute the dignity of man, we cannot on one hand cherry pick from what God gives us and kick to the side the moral obligations of representing that God in governance. For to these they are bound by nature's God, nor is there any power upon the earth capable of granting them absolution from them. The people who assume their equal and separate station among the powers of the earth by the laws of nature's God, that's Americans. We're doing this different, they said. Thank you, no thank you, Great Britain. We believe God gave us permission to do it different, that every man and woman is to be respected, and that there is the right of the governed to choose who governs them. Thank you, no thank you, rest of the world. By the very acknowledgement of the laws of nature's God, they have bound themselves to the observance of those laws and could neither exercise nor confer any power inconsistent with them. I'm here to tell you that in preparation for this message, I've changed my mind about some things. I want to ask you, how long has it been since you've changed yours about anything? We've come to the place where we've siloed ourselves into bipolar opposite camps, and the very foundation of our being in the nature of God, no respecters of persons, no theologically established ruling class, but the great opportunity for any man or woman to aspire to this kind of civic service is to be within the realm and the reach. Three score and one years ago, Adam's still writing, have passed, so 71 years. 
61 years since this declaration was issued. And we may now judge of the tree by its fruit. So he's looking back over six decades saying, let's look at what we created. It was a bold and hazardous step when considered merely as the action of separation of colonies from Great Britain. In other words, if God wasn't in it, it was a terribly risky thing to do. Had the cause in which it was issued failed, I want you to think of all those signers of the Constitution and the Declaration. It would have subjected every individual who signed it to the pains and penalties of treason to a cruel and ignominious death. Don't forget it. They weren't moving willy-nilly. It wasn't this new uh, governmental philosophy that they picked off the shelf, let's try it. The Protestant cornerstone of this country, which founded itself in its best movements on the Word of God and the principles of love, dictated that a change should come. No, we will not be subject to your theology of governance, your philosophy of governance. Reading on, but inflexible as were the spirits and intrepid were the hearts of the patriots who by this act set at defiance the colossal power of the British Empire. Just understand, Great Britain was not some little wimpy governance to be contended with. Bolder and more intrepid still were the souls which at that crisis in human affairs dared to proclaim the new and fundamental principles upon which their incipient republic was to be founded. It was an experiment. Listen to this line. might be the most important I read. It was an experiment upon the heart of man. Now I'm going to hit the pause button on his speech. And I'm going to tell you one of the things I've learned preparing for this message. You already know from the book of Revelation chapter 13, there's a lamb-like beast. He doesn't come up out of the waters. He comes up out of the land. Prophecy had foretold of this nation. It would have balancing principles, not one horn with which to gouge with illimitable sovereignty, but balancing principles. It would speak like a lamb and live like a lamb at first, but eventually it would snarl like a dragon. I'm here to tell you the snarls are starting to grow in the guttural movements of this nation's absence of soul. I want to tell you that since the beginning of the societal, if we want to call it that, the revolution in society some 50, 60 years ago, we've seen a throwing off of all the things that made us great. We have seen the sense that somehow we have manifest destiny without divine destiny. And God is reminding us today that this nation is the most unique and in its finer moments and more principled parts, the closest aligned to the governance of heaven of any except the theocracy of Israel that has ever been on the face of the planet. You say bold statements, Pastor, but they are absolutely true. This country is no fluke, no accident. 
No convenient move. This country called for the noblest of all man's sentiments and the highest of all man's sacrifices to come into being. And signing your name should Cornwallis conquer on the Brooklyn Heights. Signing your name should Washington be surrounded and undelivered by providence that he was multiple times. You could find yourself hanging on a British gallows. I'm absolutely convinced that there is a law in the Scriptures, and this is what it is. It's from the book of Corinthians. By beholding, you become what? Changed. So we've had to tear down every visage, and I'm speaking even pre to the dynamics of social interaction going on right now, prior to the social unrest in our country. So I'm not making a statement this morning about the need for continued healing of this nation's soul, which it needs healed. But even prior to that moment, it appeared that it was our job to demystify any legendary status of those who made colossal sacrifices and took great risk. But we need to understand that every river of blood that has flowed, every life that is laid lifeless on a battlefield, whether it was for our own liberty or the liberty of the rest of the world, is an outgrowth of the spirit and presence of God that all men should have the rights that God enunciated in his word and articulated in our declaration of independence. I've stood on the beaches of Normandy. I've walked the hallowed sacred grounds of the American cemeteries there. I've stood in the cupola describing in graphic form America sending its live souls over to save and France burying those dead souls in the name of gratitude. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is a peril for this republic, and its peril is, is that it has taken its eyes off nature's God and the laws that not only created our liberty, but bound us to moral living. And I want to talk to you about the fact that by beholding we become changed, and I want to assure you that in the last 50 years, the last 60 years, there is an acceleration of transformation because we are immersed in the wrong things. This nation and its benign and noble dictates and directives that would move us to lay our lives down for interest in people for which we would never see any monetary or any other form of good except their gratitude and the staying tide of darkness. Think World War II. This nation is the most generous this nation has operated with the most pure impulses and has established the greatest barriers against cruelty and despotism of any nation in the last 2,000 years. This nation motivated as a almost imperceptibly traced at least for origin of purpose, this nation which has perhaps not thought much about why it is what it is, is, has reflected for so much of its history the goodness of God for the sake of others 
and acted out of its blessings to be a benefactor to the whole earth. And if in its latest chapters it appears that our witness is not so, then there can be no doubt but that we are called back to the simplicity of the twin pillars which Washington said hold up this democracy, which is religion and morality. And they don't have to be one and the same. But they ought to be. God was moving on men's souls to take a risk. The law of right binding upon nations as well upon individuals. By that law, the colonists resisted their sovereign. Think Great Britain. By that law, when that resistance had failed to reclaim him to the right rule of right, in other words, they did not accept Great Britain, they renounced him, abjured his allegiance, and assumed the exercise of rightful sovereignty themselves. But in assuming the attributes of sovereign power, they appealed to the supreme judge. This is all Adams. The supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of their intentions and neither claimed nor conferred authority to do anything but of right. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that this nation has a shelf life. Yes, I preached on that not that long ago. Its shelf life is directly related to the preservative agent of the Spirit of Christ in its midst. When that preservative agent dissipates and when we embrace a new gospel, a secular gospel, which denies the basics of human morality, including the transgender movement and the push to legalize same-sex marriage, we find ourselves working at odds with the divine right of establishing our form of government. We are now at war with the very principles and essence that brought our nation into existence. Which brings me to a strange happening of less than 24 hours ago. So I arrived home yesterday afternoon and I see what came in the mail. Now, I don't belong to any book clubs, but I had this book written by a New York Times bestseller with a good last name. His name's Matthew Kelly. <laughs> it's sitting on my dining room table and I'm thinking to myself, why do I have this book? The biggest lie in the history of Christianity. Well, that's kind of intriguing. What is it? And the subtitle will get your attention even better. How modern culture, well, you decide, is this true or false? How modern culture is robbing billions of people of happiness. See some heads bobbing without me even asking for physical expression. Do you think modern culture is robbing billions of people of happiness? Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, who would send me this book? It wasn't sent by a person. It wasn't wrapped like that. You could tell it, it had come through a place where lots of people were getting this book. As a matter of fact, you can buy this book, and it's not cheap yet. The Kindle edition still costs you seven bucks. I mean, it's not like this is just a uh, denominational piece of... Uh, I don't know, should I use the word propaganda sent out? It's 
It's not what I want my stuff called when I send it out. So what is the biggest lie in the history of Christianity? Well, I can tell you what the book thinks it is. The book thinks the lie is that holiness is not possible, page 32. Now, do you want to know who published the book and why I got it? I think it would be good for you to know. The book is published by Dynamic Catholicism, the Dynamic Catholic. And the book is an outlier. What do you mean? The book is out in front of the curve of where society is headed because most people believe that we're on an implosion trajectory as a society. Most people believe there's enough cultural rot that eventually there's going to be a breakdown of some of the things we take for granted. And behind the movement of the newly discovered Catholicism, there is a page on the front page of their website. You check it out. It wants to help everybody discover, the last line says, the genius of Catholicism. Now, I want to tell you what the genius of Catholicism is. I'm going to give a real shout out to something good about the Catholic Church. Is that in the midst of Protestant Reformation breakdown, in the midst of the implosion of the Protestant belief in sola scriptura, in the attempt to make the Protestant church relevant, the Protestant church has sold its soul and it rarely exhorts or edifies, but it does a lot of consoling. In other words, the prophetic voice of the Protestant church has largely died out for the business model, mega church. The Catholics, however, to this point in time, to my understanding, have not done a belly up, woe is me, we're abandoning everything we believe. They've not decided that they can hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, your special religious order won't upset us. You can have it your way at the local Catholic church. Now, having said that, with much appreciation for the fidelity and faithfulness of so many in the Catholic Church, its structure has a genius for governance, and that structure is that it sets itself above the Word of God. This is sober. You go back and study some of its darker chapters for which it has apologized, rightly so, but the essence of its structures of governance have not changed in such a way to where at some moment in time, the genius, and by the way, I hate to call the work of our founding fathers a work of genius. It is a work of wisdom and inspiration. God determined there should be one final blaze of glory on the chapters of salvation history and that it would be found in the principles of law governed and guided in what we now know as the United States of America. And indeed, for most of its history, it has been a blaze of light and hope to so many on this earth. But the Catholic Church railed against this experiment and it still sets itself above any accountability which is antithetical completely to the founding of this country and to the principles of Protestantism. 
How are laws made? Constitutional law changes as the culture changes. It would have been unthought of when I was a boy that there would be a successful push for the recognition of homosexual marriage in the 70s. But holding in my hands here is the engines of liberty, how the powers of citizen activists to make constitutional law. The truth of the matter is, the Constitution is constantly interpreted against the political movements and the cultural trajectory of the nation. And thus, you can go whichever way you want to go, just like people do with the Bible. There is an acceleration of transformation. People are looking more and more like secular society because those are the wells they're drinking from and those are the tables they're feeding at. And there will be no legitimate, respectable, noble, credible witness to the opposite unless our lives are distinctly different. There is a weakness in the Christian church right now, and I could wish I could say Adventism is exempt, but Adventism is not. We are not receiving the showers of blessing, and the plant of righteousness is withering, and the fruits of righteousness are shriveling. And in too many places, the church is dying. And this morning, I want to announce on July 4, 2020, that there is to be a rebirth of God's holy principles in this nation. And while I do believe in a separation of church and state, you could never have a self-governed nation without having a nation of self-governed individuals. And self-governance is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Read it in Galatians 5. And as we abandon ourselves to the right use of the mind and give ourselves over to the whims of feeling and desire as we are actually trained and, and acculturated to doing as we please, we find ourselves slaves of addiction, lovers of ease, and thus the bulwarks of republicanism and liberty are being eroded while we sit and watch the show. Reading about Saul. Take your Bibles and open them there. 1 Samuel 11. Saul, the first king. He was a noble man at one phase of his life. The Spirit moved upon him. God made him his vice-regent, and Saul exercised self-control and lived a life of faith. Samuel anointed him king according to God's leading. It says, and this follows a period of theocracy during the days of Moses into the days of Joshua, and then we see this amazing absence of fidelity to God, which leads into the journey of the judges, and we come out of the judges with Samuel, prophet, priest, and judge. And at the end of his life, his boys have not followed his example, and the nation wants to look like everybody else. It's not a new problem. Saul has been coronated, verse 27, but sir, of chapter 10, just before we get to verse 1 of 11. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? 
They didn't like it that he was from Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes. They had hopes for one of their own. And they despised him and they did not bring him any presents, which is a great dishonor in an honor culture. But to his credit and through the power of the Spirit, he kept silent. Saul exercised a noble and dignified approach to this slight. But there was a problem coming. Verse 11, God was going to solve the questions about Saul with a crisis. Now Nahash the Amorite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we'll serve you. It's pretty pathetic. Israel is such a loosely confederated group of city-states and tribes that when they're surrounded by a foreign country, they don't even really think as a first response to say, maybe somebody else could help us. But when Nahash lays down these amazing and bizarre terms, they change their mind. Verse 2, Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I'll make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. And the elders said, uh, we don't need much time to think about this, but we do need time to think about. It was an insult against God, and it was insult against the weak governance and the absence of purpose that had so created this situation of weakness in the nation of Israel. Let us alone for seven days, verse 3, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to deliver us, we will come out for you. Nahash must not have been afraid because he said it's okay. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and they spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related him the words of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became angry, and he took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces, and he sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of a messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And at the end of those seven days, Saul marches all night long with his army. They surround the city, or they get in three points, God comes down and gives Saul a distinct and signal victory. And now the tide has turned completely to where they say, all right, where are those scoundrels who wouldn't honor Saul? We're going to kill him. And Saul has another noble moment. And he says, no, nobody's going to die. Now, Ellen White, in commenting on this in Patriarchs and Prophets, makes a very interesting statement that I'm afraid is a little bit too close to home. And what she has to suggest is that God's people became acquainted with ease and indulgent living. And thus Saul, who should have acted on his victory to further drive out the enemies of the land, instead only kept 3,000, two for him and one for his son, and he sent everybody home, and a great opportunity was missed. It's important for us to understand that God has in mind that we take advantage of opportunities when they come our way. What America in its Adventist experience has gone through is the advantage of a post-Second World War peacetime indulgence of itself 
with the amazing prosperity of good education, good societies, and we have actually allowed so much of God's kingdom to find itself taken advantage of by an aggressive secular society, and thus we find schools and churches closing. And God is actually ordaining crises to wake us up and show himself presence in the midst of them, similar to the challenge we face with our neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor community service center. Three months of waiting for a pole to be moved, running out of money, only to find that in the midst of it all, even after the pole has been hit by a backhoe, which, by the way, has a lot of mass, God himself retains the pole so that the work can't go, so that when the work needs to go and there's no money for it to go, his people have to make a decision. Is it going to go? Praise God. People in this community are rallying, and it's going, and it's going better than we could have ever thought. And a crisis turned into the greatest opportunity for the benefit of the disadvantaged in our community. Learning to love ease is a cardinal sin. Laziness is a mortal sin. And you cannot reconcile in our homes the love of ease and the embracing of the three angels' message of the proclaiming of Christ on a cross. We are called to a divine intentionality to announce that there's a God you could love and in a, in a day of freedom before the night settles, the twilight is upon us. Yes, Kelly's book is an outlier because it won't be too long until people say, I want security more than I want anything else. Let's get back to God. We all need to go to church. How much instability can a society endure? I don't know. It seems like we go through phases of it. And then we're left with somebody filling in the gap. Will it be God? Or will it be a new compulsion in the name of God? As long as we're talking about books, this one's old. Don't even know where I got it. But I know where I got my sermon title from an old professor at Battle Creek College who wrote a book in the latter part of the 19th century, so in the late 1800s, entitled The Peril of the Republic. If all you read was the first chapter, it'd be worth reading. I'm going to read you a few quotes. The government of God in the beautiful world to come will be a government of love. Can you say amen? A government founded upon the principles of the consent of the governed. Think about Genesis chapter 3. God could have said, that tree's not coming into the garden. Instead, he said, watch out, you have a choice to make. I don't know how many other chapters of discussion went on. I find it hard to imagine that they didn't know about the war in heaven. You've got a choice to make. For every soul in that blessed home and kingdom and in all the infinite universe will desire not else but that God and Jesus Christ shall rule. Can you hear the echoes of John the Revelator saying, even so, come Lord Jesus? How dark does this world have to get? How many chapters of fragility need to build into the American dream and its ultimate demise? There will be a day when there is no dream left, only a nightmare. 
If you can't hear the death knell of freedom in some of the movements of our age and the actions of some of our leaders, then you must be deaf and you must be blind. Because as we watch the absence of civility, even in the leading edge of governors, and I don't mean by states, I just mean in general. How can you not recognize that a house divided cannot what? Every soul in that blessed home and kingdom in all that infinite universe will desire not else but that God and Jesus Christ rule. This will be the supreme and ever-living desire of everyone. Heaven's government is indeed one deriving its powers which are only just from the concept of the governed. And just a few more sentences. He writes on page 19, With men there is a hereafter. With nations there is none. And as they cannot be punished or rewarded in the next world, they must be in this. I've come to this conclusion. As Daniel in chapter 2 told the progression of nations, all the way down to the feet of iron and clay, he spoke also of a stone cut out without hands that would smite the feet of the image, grind it into powder, and blow it away like the chaff on a threshing floor. This nation will not last. I could wish for all your children that they could have the idyllic Walt Disney of 50 years ago childhood, at least in some respects, so that they could enjoy the, the beneficent and magnanimous corporate culture of this wonderful country. But the snarl of the dragon is starting to grow. And the demise of our liberty is on its way. And if we've cast our wishes and our hopes on a beautiful Hereafter, here, we're in deep, deep trouble. The blessings, the bountiful blessings of this fantastic nation have been ours for a purpose. And while we receive the biggest benefit, being the beneficiaries, we are only the temporary holders of beneficiary status. It's to roll on to someone else. Friends, this church has been given the greatest stewardship of theological truth in all of time since the nation of Israel of old. God doesn't burn you forever. When you die, you sleep. You don't watch the misery go on. There is this amazing God who gave himself as sacrifice on the cross, who went to heaven to be our priest. We go to God through the God-man Jesus, nobody else. All the deepest, darkest secrets of who we are and what we've thought are only known by him unless we choose to tell them to someone else. And he never rejects someone who comes to him. And then the last chapter is especially Adventist, that when he's done mediating, he will move into a role that is both mediatorial and also 
a work of executing judgment, at least pronouncing the execution that's coming. And when that chapter is over, he will come. The clouds will split open wide. He'll come on a white horse to deliver his people. And what I have learned on this journey in preparation for this sermon is that while this great country, great as it follows the God of nature and nature's God's laws, this great country will implode, but the spirit of this great country will go on in the bosom of the belief in that God right up until the very time they see Jesus. And while the spirit of this country will not be absorbed by all and the governance of this country will be run over by expediency for security for whatever reason is out there, the truest of all Americans will follow that same truth right on to the acceptance of the laws of the God who set up the laws of this nation, including the Sabbath. There's a God out there you can love. He's actually worthy of beautiful emotion. As Conrad Vine mentioned in the Sabbath School Council, the joy, the peace, the hope, the joy of knowing I've received God, the peace of salvation, the hope of an eternal existence, eternal life, eternal love. Yes, there's a big lie going on out there right now. And the lie is that it's all just going to keep going somehow or another. Eternal hope, I guess. It was Margaret Thatcher who talked about liberty requiring eternal vigilance and many others. I want to remind you Many divine providential deliverances came to this country. I mentioned Brooklyn Heights. When Washington was trapped on Brooklyn Heights, surrounded by the British fleet, the British generals said, it's okay, we're going to leave him there till morning. Washington said to his subordinates, find me as many rowboats and as many sailboats as you can find me we're getting off this island tonight. His subordinates said, the fleet will see us. We will be obliterated. What's worse than that was that a servant of a, a British sympathizer, a citizen, I can't say of the United States, but of the pre-United States, saw what Washington was doing and sent her servant as an informer. What you may not know about the story is that when the informer reached the British troops and told them what Washington was doing, they looked at him and said, huh? And maybe he said it again, I don't know. But I know this, that the servant was directed to a group of Hessian troops who spoke only German. And for all the informing that was going on, God was creating a way for Washington to get his men off that island. When he was stuck in the mud and Cornwallis was waiting to get him, I mean stuck in the mud, God sent that what would have been otherwise blighting, freezing wind and turned the mud into something a lot more solid. Washington escaped again. When the tide was turned and it was time to capture Cornwallis, he thought he'd take a play out of Washington's playbook and slip away 
in the dark of night, but God sent a tempest upon the waters, and they were sinking. The next morning, Cornwallis comes out with his white flag. For as much as it gives me no pleasure to articulate a wide deviation from the God of nature and nature's God, I'm not calling people to ensconce in law any religion, but in your home, in this society, without the culture of Christ, the acceleration of transformation will go unchecked. And the rot from within will be the ruin from without. Forty-four years ago, on this day, I got to do something I never have gotten to do, been allowed to do. I was a little boy growing up on a quarter-acre piece of ground in the midst of a little subdivision. My parents had bought me a minibike. The problem with the minibike was it was not properly fitted for the size of the, the lot, the size of the house. So a quarter acre is not a lot of ground. When you leave church today, drive out that side right there and look at the piece of ground between us and McDonald's. That's a third of an acre. So it's more than my house was on. And I want you to imagine a backyard, which would be probably half of the lot. And I want you to imagine a boy on a little red Honda mini bike going round and round and round and round and round and round. I'm surprised my parents let me tear up their yard like I did. Every once in a while, something would get the better of me or the worst of me, and I'd get that mini bike out of the backyard, and it'd be in the front yard, which was way littler. But the temptation of the front yard was that there was this cement pad that went for thousands of feet we called it a sidewalk. And it was just so tempting to do what I could never do in the backyard, which was take that huge monstrosity of mechanical speed machine-ish nature and, and open the throttle wide up, which I could never do going in a circle for fear of running into the chain link fence. But every once in a while, I'd look up the road and I'd look down the road and I'd look back to the house, and I'd get that twitchy wrist, and I'd click it into gear, and it'd clunk forward, and I'd tear out down the sidewalk. Oh, the wind rushing by my face. The worst thing in the world that could happen is one of those nosy neighbors getting on the phone and calling the police. And sure enough, I'd have to be paying extra good attention that I was at least on the sidewalk in front of my house when that car with the red lights went by. There were times it stopped right there and the man got out. But imagine the moment when on the 4th of July, 44 years ago, I had perfect permission to take my little mini bike and go ride it in the 4th of July parade. Isn't this a great country? Every drop of blood, every bullet, every bomb, every resolve, every determination, 
Every soldier, every sailor, every airman, every coast guard, every army soldier, every noble politician. And by the way, friends, as I come to the end, I want you to understand this is not a raw democracy. It's a republic because we believe there ought to be some safeguards between the wild ideas of the masses. There needs to be some leadership, people who put their face into the wind. This was not set up to run riot. Every person throughout the ages that has sacrificed, whether it was with a liberty garden so that more could go to the war effort, or whether it was prayers for those that lead our nation. Every element of this nation, the greatest in the last two millennia and founded on the greatest principles ever conceived by the providence of God in the heart of man, this is a great nation. But its greatness could find itself like Daniel before Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, and the words, many, many, tekel, you farsons, could be found and someday will be said against it, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. May God save us from the overreaction that would repudiate all of the elements of our Constitution, and may God call us as parents, teachers, pastors, leaders, businessmen, politicians, administrators, back to the true principles that made this nation great. For no nation is forever endued with a mandate, especially if it abandons those sovereign and inspired ideas, the consent of the governed. Yes, indeed, friends, God will not force you to do anything. He is the right ruler of this universe. And yet, at the great gift of his own son, his own person. He's made provision for you to say, I want it or I don't want it. If you had to live forever where you burned, you could never really have said no to God. But this God would be abandoned by all, friend, taken advantage of by foe. And he would die in our place so that we could say with true liberty, the price is paid. I receive Christ. I want his lordship in my life, and I want to live in a society where he is Lord of all. Even so, we can hear the words of John, come Lord Jesus. What kind of patriot are you today? Will you stay holed up in your cave, too afraid to put your face into the wind? Are you tribal in our age of polarized politics, or are you principled? Is everything this side says wrong because it's left and every side this says is right because it's right or vice versa? Are you a man or a woman who's learned how to speak truth to power and have a life credible enough to where people will listen? Have you ever changed your mind about anything? Is there enough humility in your heart to be willing to surrender whatever status God has given you in life, but you would be true to the God who established the highest order of truth in government. God's calling you today. It's time to know how to be what they were so that we can leave behind an eternal legacy to those who are leaning on us, to pass from one generation to another in kindness and respect, a clear call to be the noble men and women God's called us to. Yes, friends, unfortunately, in the twilight of this country's existence, there is a peril for the republic. But where the principles of the republic are ensconced, held in our hearts, may the light of God's glory still shine true 
to the right rules of government leadership. May God bless you in your home. May God bless you in your school. May God bless you in your business. May you be the kind of person that announces the coming of the Lord of glory in a way to where people want to listen. May we be the kind of citizen that prays for our leaders and speaks in an appropriate way. God, save us from tribalism in this hour. God, save us from the kind of lack of credibility that could change anything. And may God help each one of us to celebrate the most awesome birth of freedom this world has ever known on this day by men who risk their lives so that we could know the joy and the liberty to say what we want, worship how we want, subject our lives to what we believe God called us to be and do. May God help us and may God truly bless the United States of America.
Father, we've sung our prayer. Forgive us, Lord, when we have followed an increasingly secular and godless culture into the love of pleasure and ease. Forgive us, Lord, when our homes have looked like, in too great a measure, the same places of entertainment, private though they be, as were once public and are often in the precincts of those who make no profession of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, when we've allowed churches to be neglected by our absence, our resources, and our talents to speak truth to power to the whole of society, to all men and women, to stand up and be counted in moments when counting mattered. I'm praying, Father, that what appears to be the twilight of the civility and nobility and dignity and godlikeness of this nation, that we would work while it is still day, for the night cometh when no man can work. May we sense the outliers. May we hear the reverberating of a desire for normalness. And may it move us, Lord, into singleness of purpose. Oh, Lord, we celebrate so much that is good on this day. And yet, Lord, it must be against the warning of so much that has deviated from the divine sense of providential placement and purpose, be it national, Lord, but be it denominational as a movement. Oh, Lord, save us from ourselves, save us from the blessings that have been weaponized against us. And may we realize that yours is the law of liberty. And may we let you remove those obstacles to our heart's devotion. And I pray again, Lord, bless us on this day as we reflect and enjoy our freedoms to be resolved to the eternal vigilance required to keep them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.